Today we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5. But before we do that, I just want to get us rolling by reading a prayer from the Apostle Paul. I don't know about you, but I have always look curious to know, how did the Apostle Paul pray? You know, to get inside the mind of the Apostle, a saint, to hear his heart for the people he was ministering to. Well, we have already gone through two prayers in the book of Ephesians, right? Chapter 1 and chapter... What's the other chapter? Do you know? Two, cha- two prayers in Ephesians? Chapter 1 and chapter 3. Alright guys, a little rusty here. You should have that on your chart. Anyway, there's also another prayer that I, I want to read this evening. It is a prayer from a sister letter. That is the letter to the book, to the Colossi- Church of Colossae, the book of Colossians. It's really my prayer for you, and it's been my prayer for you, all those who are involved in our GROW course. The Apostle Paul is praying for the church in Colossae. He's praising God for them. He's praising God for their faith, and how he has heard reports of how the gospel is at work in this church. And then he mentions this interesting phrase regarding the gospel, and how it is at work in the church in Colossae. And he says this in Colossians 1.6. The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. This gospel, which is bearing fruit in the whole world, Here's the Apostle Paul 30 years later, after Christ's death, resurrection, after Pentecost, 30 years later, he said, this gospel is now bearing fruit in all the world. This gospel has gone from Jerusalem to Syria, to Greece, to Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey, to Italy, to Egypt, to North Africa. This gospel is spreading, and it is growing. The gospel is marching forth. Well, here we are, 2011, and we can look back 30 years, and we can even see how the gospel is growing in our world. I'll date myself here, but if we were going back 30 years, I think very few people would have predicted that today there would be roughly 100 million Christians in the country of China. That Mongolia would have 40,000 believers, that there would be churches planted throughout the former communist bloc. Hardcore communist countries like Albania, 30 years ago, couldn't even conceive having a church there. Now churches throughout the country, that tiny country of Albania. Massive people movements are occurring in the most unlikely of places. In places like Iran, a Muslim country, masses are coming to Christ in the face of much persecution. In countries like Sudan as well, there's a people movement. In Nepal, hundreds of millions of oppressed people, even in India, are coming to the Lord and being saved. The gospel is going forth and it's spreading throughout the world. Not just throughout the world, right here at Palm Vista. 30 years ago, there was no Palm Vista, was there? No plans of a Palm Vista or a church plant. The gospel is bearing fruit. Why do I mention that? When we speak about growth, i.e. the growth growth course, 
We're not just talking about individual growth. We're talking about the growth of the gospel, its expansion and proclamation. It's this gospel which grows as we learn to walk it out. As we learn to walk out the gospel, it grows and it is growing. Paul goes on to say in the same prayer to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. We've spent the last seven plus months gaining spiritual wisdom and understanding right along the lines of this prayer of the Apostle Paul through the book of Ephesians. Now we're in the last three chapters, aren't we? We talked about the Christian's wealth. Now we're talking about the Christian's walk. What it means to walk out these truths in our church, in relationships, in our daily lives. So you're ready to walk this evening? We're going to take a walk this evening to chapter 5. By the way, I'm glad... The Apostle Paul uses that word. That's an important word, isn't it, in the book of Ephesians, as, we, as we've learned. The idea of walking. We're to walk out these truths that we've been glorying in over these last few months. He didn't say run. The Christian life isn't a run, is it? It's not a sprint. It's not a track meet. I like that. It's a walk. It's not a skip to the tulips. <laughs> it's hard. The Christian life is akin to a walk. It's deliberate. It's going in a direction. It's step by step. Nothing flashy, nothing elite about it. Most of us can walk. It is a walk. It communicates a faithfulness, a direction, a steadiness as you walk out the Christian life. Paul is concerned that the Ephesians would learn to walk. Walk in the very truths that we've been talking about. I realized this evening some of us come, we're walking at pretty crisp pace. Other, other of us, others of us, we're limping. <laughs> you know, we're walking this evening, but we're barely making it. Whatever the case, may we walk. May you keep walking this evening, and may you be encouraged as we go through these truths. With that in mind, let us pray. Dear Jesus, we are in desperate need of you this morning. This evening as well. All day, all night, every day, and every week. I know for some of us, we may feel like this evening that the wind is in our face. It's hard to walk. We've been fighting the wind. We feel the resistance. But Lord, may we keep the course this evening. May we walk and faithfulness in these truths. Lord, I ask that the gospel this evening would push us in the direction that we're to walk towards you, towards righteousness. Lord, I ask for those who've been feeling the wind in their face, that the wind, Lord, would reverse tonight. For the first time, maybe in a long time, that they would feel the wind at their back. Lord, push us, nudge us forward as we walk this evening in these wonderful truths of the gospel. Holy Spirit, fill us, we ask, with faith to believe and to walk out, to conform to the calling for which you've called us as Christians this evening, we pray. Amen. Amen. With that in mind, let us listen.
to the whole chapter 5 of Ephesians from a very own, not a very own, but you can kind of know him pretty well here, Max McLean. Ephesians 5, let us hear the word of God to us. Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality, in all impurity or covetousness, must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ephesians 6. Children. Great. Wow, that is a lot. That is a lot of content. That is a lot of meat. God help us <laughs> this evening with all this. Oh, 
we're going to tackle it in the next hour the best we can. may not hit every point adequately, but I do want you to capture the flow and the content here as we dig our teeth into a few of these precious truths. Well, as I prefaced in our time together here, our introduction, the key operative word, chapters 3, chapters 4 through 6, is the word walk. And that's going to help us even break down this chapter we just heard. I don't know about you, when I look at chapter 5, there's just a lot of stuff. I'm like, how do I divide this? It's just a long, I mean, there's some long paragraphs. In fact, in the Greek, there's only verses 1 through 14 or, or two sentences only. It's, it's a lot of stuff. So how do I navigate through this? I mean, I, I could read it for a while. I just, my mind kind of, you know, I can't, I can't handle it. It just goes into overload. So what we want to do first is try to divide and frame chapter 5. And I think we have some key textual markers that I've already referred to. And it's the word walk. Actually, it's two words. Therefore and walk. We see this three times in the book Ephesians chapter 5. So, your first question, number one, cite the three verses which contain this key word and really frame all the admonitions of this chapter. So where do we see the first marker, walk? Where do we find it? Okay, okay. Verse 2. We see the therefore in the verse 1, right? Therefore, then verse 2, and walk in love. Okay, there we go. Walk in love. I can get my hands around that. Okay, What's, where's the second time that you see there, the construction therefore and walk? What verse? Just name it. Eight? Yes, seven is therefore and followed after that is eight. Therefore, then verse eight, walk as children of light. So walk in love and now walk in children of light. Okay, that helps me. Okay. Where's the third, the third reference to walk? Okay, verse 15. Now, I don't see a therefore there, do you? There is, but actually, you know, actually, right before the word look, actually in verse 15, there is a therefore. They left it out in English, but it's right there. Un in Greek, it's right there. I don't know why they left it out, but you'll see it in some translations. But you're right, there's also one earlier on in 14. But even after the quote there, therefore, look carefully how you walk. Walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So there you go. There we have a division, I think a helpful division, that's rooted in the actual text itself. Right? Walk in love. Right? Walk in light. Or something of light. And the third, we could say walk in wisdom. Those three uses of walk really frame the groupings of admonitions and tell us how we are to walk, how we are to live. So hopefully that helps you as we go through our discussion this evening. Once again, we're working and laboring to see the logic um, of the Paul. And there is a logic to this whole book, isn't there? How it's laid out, even how he lays out the chapters themselves. Great. Well, let's go back to question, uh, verses 1 and 2. As you start now from the beginning of chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to the Lord. Question two, I put in your homework. I said, what hope do we have that we can imitate God and walk in love? Our first admonition. 
Before we answer that question, I just want to say, I, I ask this question for a specific reason. I think most of us, if you're like me, are prone to read this chapter. In, and all that we see is duty. Obligation. Walk this way. Do this. Do that. And so we can so quickly turn inward when we hear these imperatives, these commands. One more thing I got to do. All right, what's the first one? Be imitators of God. Okay, and walk in love. Okay, yeah, Corey, yeah. Um, I'll try harder. Try harder imitating God, you know? Well, that thought lasts about three seconds. <laughs> then I forget it. Then I go on to the next admonition. And after about the 15th one, it just kind of becomes white noise <laughs> after a while. I mean, I'm trying to focus, but I'm just hearing do this, do that, obligation, duty. Or maybe you're not quite like that. You just read that and you go, you're yeah, right. Imitate God. <laughs> what does that mean? God is omniscient. God is self-existent. God is self-sufficient. Imitate God. Yeah, right. Impossible. <laughs> Ain't going to happen. Okay? We can just give up before we even started, right? So we can have one or two reactions, I think, as we read these series of commands. And all the while, you know what? We miss the gospel, and it's right under our nose. In fact, it's embedded even in these first two verses. You see, we can miss, when we read chapter 5, we can miss all the indicatives, all the truths that we have been glorying in in chapters 1 through 3. Oh, that was last month. <laughs> we can just forget them, or discard them, and we don't bring them into the admonition. We forget these truths that are the backdrop and the foundation for the Apostle Paul is thus God is asking us to do. God's indicative ceased to have any bearings on the imperatives that we're now discussing. Oh, may it not be. These two verses and those that follow are packed with gospel hope. The question is, do you see it? Okay, Corey, I think, is that just the right answer? Yeah, I know it's the gospel, but where is the gospel in these first two verses? Do we have any textual clues at all? What words in these first two verses give us hope that we could even possibly obey this command to walk in love, to imitate God? Did you find them? Looking for a couple words there. Anyone, raise your hand. Anyone have them? Okay, Alex. Okay, just as Christ. So Christ has already done it, so Christ lifted up as the model and the power by which to lay down our lives and to live a life of sacrifice and love. Okay, definitely. Reference to Christ there, very helpful. Yes. What else do you see there? Anyone else? Yes, David. Ah, oh, okay, beloved. Beloved children. Notice that phrase. Tease that out for, for us, David. What significance does that have in this imperative here? Ah, that's great, David. You catch, you catch that? We're dressed as children. Don't, no, he's not saying imitate God that you may become children. No. You're already accepted. You've been adopted into his family. Ephesians 1. You're in. You're in, baby. You're part of the family. Now obey and act like it and live like it as children who are loved by God. We're laboring from a place of acceptance, not to earn his acceptance, because we already have it as 
a child to the father. Key phrase, isn't it? That, that's a packed phrase. It's a very loaded phrase, even in Ephesians, right? Then that we know, knowing what we know about the fact that we've been adopted and brought into his family. Any other clues there as well? What other word I'm looking at here? Okay, going back to the, what Alex said, Jose, a little bit as well, what Christ has already done for us, offering themselves as a fragrant offering to God on our behalf, i.e. the gospel enters in, right. Good. One other. Those are all right answers. I'm looking for one other, though, as well. David, see it? Ah, bingo. Key word, therefore, right? We start off the chapter with therefore. We have to look, why is it therefore? Go back to chapter 4, right? Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. Because you have been forgiven, you now can imitate God and you can forgive others. You catch that? Gotta go back. See the motive there? The power behind? The admonition? Because we've been forgiven, therefore we can forgive and we can imitate God. Not in his incommunicable attributes, those which we do not share, but in those we do share. We can forgive because Christ has first forgiven us. So there's some key words if we clue into those that form the backdrop and really the whole motive for obedience, don't they? And the whole empowerment for obedience. I want to read to you someone I want to read to you it's a lengthy quote, but I think it's so helpful. It's from the book called Counsel from the Cross. And it's speaking of this verse in Ephesians five one. If we miss these textual cues, therefore, beloved children, if we miss the gospel it changes how we are motive for obedience and how we think of God, ourselves, and others. Listen to this. If we forget God's generous, overwhelming grace in forgiving us, we will think of him as a hard man, reaping where he did not sow and gathering where he scattered no seed. We will have low thoughts of him. That is God. We will see him as a harsh taskmaster, exacting rigorous, impossible obedience from us and being disappointed and angry with us when we, predictably, fail to meet his expectations. We will assume that God continues to hold our sins against us and that he is tallying up all the ways in which we fail. When we fail to savor his astonishing mercy, he will morph into a satanic caricature in our minds, a pharaoh demanding that we make bricks without straw. In response, we will be bound to hide our talent in the ground for fear of greater failure or harsher rebuke and then grudgingly return it to him when we have to. Secondly, if we forget that we were forgiven by God because of his son's sacrifice, we will see ourselves as slaves trying to earn his goodwill and make up for the past miscues rather than as forgiven children. We will be afraid to try to obey because we know we were bound to fail. If God is like Pharaoh, he won't be touched by our halting efforts at obedience. We will be afraid to persevere because we'll know that we are doomed from the start. Why bother trying? We will be void of love for him that is meant to motivate and fuel all our attempts at obedience. We will become lazy, unbelieving servants. And thirdly, catch this. If in our sight God becomes a caricature of Pharaoh, then our brothers and sisters in Christ are nothing more than fellow slaves 
who had better pull their weight. If God seems harsh and demanding, unforgiving and exacting, then that is exactly how we would treat others. Forgive them for sinning against us? Well, maybe, but only after we've gotten our pound of flesh and they have proven that they are really sorry and have really changed. Why would we be generous toward them when God has been so demanding of us? When we forget about God's lavish forgiveness, we will hate our master and we will oppress our fellow slaves. After all, it certainly wouldn't be right for them to get away without meeting Pharaoh's quota like we have to. We will demand strict obedience without forgiveness because that's what we imagine God has demanded from us. Forgetting that we are already forgiven will rob us of those Christ-like qualities of kindness, generosity, gentleness, and long-suffering. It will also rob us of the only acceptable motive for obedience, love. The gospel declaration embodied in me, therefore, makes all the difference in the world. Therefore, be imitators of God. Therefore, walk in love. Therefore, walk in the light. Therefore, walk in wisdom. Don't miss it. The gospel's right there. Paul's laid it out. Let's bring it in now to what we're going to talk about here in Ephesians 5. How important it is that we start with that. Well, not only does verses 1 and 2 speak of the things that we must do, there are all specific things as Christians that we must avoid as a result. And that leads us to question number three in your homework. What must Christians avoid in this first section, verses 1 through 6, really 3 through 6? How are the verses 3 through 6 a perversion of the love that we are to imitate in the first two, first two, first two verses? Let's start there. What are we to avoid as Christians, verses 3 through 6? What's the first one that we see there? Sexual immorality. The word there would be pornea. In the Greek, speaking of all promiscuous sexual activity, any sexual activity outside of marriage. All right? What's the second word we see there? Impurity. That relates to all sexual perversion, homosexuality, incest, etc. What's the third thing we're to avoid? Covetousness. Sometimes I may say greed. Right. After the last three, they, get in, they refer more, not so much to our, the actions of the, or the heart, but our speech. They are, there must be no filthiness, foolish talk, nor crude joking. Oh, what is Paul talking about there? I think he's talked about vulgar, obscene language related to the very context we find it in. That which engages in sexual banter and talk that is completely inappropriate. So there we go. These last three, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, and the words of John Stott, all three refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in dirty conversation. This we must avoid. May I suggest Paul's understanding about entering, entering into conversation that is obscene or vulgar. 
Could this not also include listening to conversation that would also be sexually vulgar and obscene? Because a lot of us may say, you know what, I think I'm pretty good. Yeah, I can avoid those conversations. But do we avoid them on our TV? Do we avoid them in the movies? Are we partakers of this type of obscene, vulgar speech? Either we enter into it or we actively listen to it. Paul is saying, this must not be. Why? Because this is a perversion of the very love that we're to walk in. Verses 1 and 2. Let's elaborate on that a little more. How is this, these verses 3 through 6, a perversion of what Paul, and thus God, is commanding us to do in verses 1 through 2? Any ideas there? A great question, Ron, for the recording. How do I approach situations that I can't avoid? Maybe a family member who would be chosen a lifestyle that would be described here, or a coworker who would be engaged in such language. Well, certainly, I think, Ron, you can't engage them. You certainly can love them. There's an unfortunate translation, not in the ESV, but another one, that says, do not associate with them. That's not a good translation. The idea is do not be partakers, okay? So I think we can engage folks. I think the idea is willingly conversing, okay? Yes, there's times where you can't avoid but are you willingly seeking or participating in that conversation in a way that would give your implicit endorsement of it, okay? And it's different than actually being in a situation where you can't control what they're saying. Oh, my, my ears heard it, you know. Uh-oh. Great. Yes, I think we can be. Certainly Paul, certainly Christ himself, the ultimate model there. We can be gracious. That doesn't mean we endorse the lifestyle behavior, but certainly we can love and we can't even commend where we see God's grace in their lives as well, certainly. So what we see in these verses is a love in verses 1 and, one and 2 that we're to walk in, now perverted in verses 3 through 4. In action, in attitude, and in speech. We see a misuse of God's gift of sexuality. Self-sacrificing love, verse 2 and turned into self-indulgence. Love has become lust. See the connection here? How they're being juxtaposed in, these, in this section. But listen to the antidote. Listen to the replacement of such perversion. I find this fascinating. The end of verse 4. So let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be Thanksgiving. Wow, I didn't see that coming. I might have said, let there instead be pure and noble thoughts. <laughs> but yep, Thanksgiving. So instead of foolish talk, there'll be Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? What do you think? Thanksgiving for? What's that? Sorry? Salvation? Okay. Beloved children? Children could be. What do you have thanks in all things, right? May I suggest to you that's embedded in a context? Could it be that Paul is saying Thanksgiving for sex as God intended it? Could it be? Doesn't say, but there is a context there, right? He's saying replace the exploitation of sex with Thanksgiving for it in its proper context. He's going to address that a little later on, isn't he? It's proper context at the end of Ephesians 5, right? When he addresses husband and wives. 
Fascinating. See, I don't think the scripture, nor Apostle Paul here, is advocating a prudish Victorianism, which all sex is denigrated and seen as evil. No, he's not. We as Christians, we want to fight for sex in its proper place, the context of marriage, in its covenant relationship. I want to talk to my children appropriately at the right age. I want them to know that sex is God's good idea. I want them to know, as appropriate, that mommy and daddy are thankful for sex. Okay? I want to talk about it in those terms. Oh, yes, it has been perverted by the world and can be perverted. Yes, in our sinful natures. Something very good about it. It is God's design, and it is good. With thanksgiving. Fascinating thought there. And then he gets to the end, chapter 5. The proper context, and we'll delve into it a little, a little later, starting with chapter 5, verse 22 and following. Well, question number 4. In verse 6, we are definitely in verse 5 as well. There is a warning for those who participate in this spoiled sex, in this exploitation of sex, in this perversion of love that we're to walk in. First of all, there's the warning that if you continue in this way, so this is the pattern, this is your way of life, if you've given into this, you will be excluded from the kingdom. You're not really saved. If this is your lifestyle and your behavior, warning number one. And warning number two, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That caught your attention, it caught mine. It's in the present tense. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, particularly in this area that he has just mentioned. So what do you think? How is or how might the wrath of God be experienced on earth in sexual immorality? Disease? Could be disease, okay? I think definitely Raphael, I think is, is well, I think my mind goes to Romans 1 as well, where we see that repeatedly, don't we? Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And right, verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity. Verse 26, for the reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Right? Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to what ought not to be done. We see this hardening of heart, don't we? This disintegration of society itself. No, I think the wrath of God is more than that. I think the wrath of God, scripturally, is God's personal hatred of sin. Okay? So the wrath of God is not merely cause and effect. But I think it begins there. We reap, definitely, some of the consequences of our actions. That's not all the wrath of God is. But certainly we've seen in Romans, there is this hardening of heart that takes place. Of no restraint. Of hardened hearts. And certainly we are warned both in Romans and in short form here in Ephesians 5 as well. There is consequences to our actions both in the present but leading to eternity as well. It is a severe warning, is it not? Well, question five. What is the significance of the admonition to walk as children of light? This is our second usage of walk. Walk as children of light. 
What point do you think Paul is making by adding the phrase, as children? Why not just say, walk in the light? What did you come up with there? Okay, yeah. Good, good. Walk in your true identity, right? Just not walk in the light. You are children of light. God is light, and you are his child. You are light. So live like it. Okay? Live like it, that you are light. I mean, your conduct in Christ reflect who you are in Christ. That you would exhibit the fruit of light. What's the, what's the fruit of light? What is good, right, and true. It's not just saying walk in the light. It says you are light. So walk like it. You're in the light. And what does light do? Expose. Exposes what? Darkness. Be light as you are light. And may your light and may your life expose darkness. And that leads to the next question, number six. What is pleasing to the Lord, as we find in verse ten? According to the excuse me, according to the verses which follow. What is pleasing to the Lord, and why is this activity pleasing to the Lord? Sorry, how was that? Exposing the deeds of darkness, right? Yes. We are light. We're called, it's part of our identity, to expose light, to expose darkness. That which pleases the Lord, we are to expose darkness. Why does this please the Lord? It does. Certainly humility does. Yeah, I think, I think it goes back to acting in accordance with our nature, doesn't it? As those who are holy, as those who are light, are children of light. We're acting according to our new nature, don't we? Yeah. Well, kind of back to what Marcos was saying. How, how do we expose darkness? Not, not just in ourselves, so that we can confess and give light to areas where we have deceived or covered or hidden. But how do we expose darkness in the world? This darkness that he's referred to, even in the earlier parts of the chapter 5 here. How are we to expose? How do we do that as light, as children of light? Like you said, number one, yeah, it's words and it's actions. It's our behavior, isn't it? Right. You're going to add to that or say something different? Preaching the gospel? Yeah. I think we do it a variety of ways. Certainly we do it through words. We do it through conduct as well, right? We expose darkness as we are light, as we live as light. Right. That's great, Ron. So we don't expose darkness by pointing the finger in combination. It doesn't work. No. We don't do, do gossip. We do it by exhibiting a contrasting conduct which is radically different from the world. And we expose light. That as we live out and walk out this gospel light that we're talking about in Ephesians, right? That people would see the ugliness of their sin and may experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit and that they come to faith in Jesus, their Savior. May it be. Our, yes, our words, but they must be backed up by our conduct. We live as light, as a contrast to the darkness around us, don't we? We're not going to win people to Christ by being like the world, by somehow co-opting the world and becoming nocturnal animals or bats somehow, you know, that flirt with darkness. No. We're going to do it by being light, who we are in Christ, and by our conduct, we expose darkness. May it be.
That is our call as children of light. So we've covered the first two walks. We're to walk in love. We're to walk in light or as light. Then thirdly, we're to walk in wisdom. Verse 15, and question number seven on your homework. What does it mean in verse 15 to walk not as unwise, but as wise, according to the verses which follow? I believe there's three ways we have that we're to walk in wisdom. What do you find there in the text? What's the first one? Anyone? The first way we're to walk not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of your time. Okay, number one. Making the best use of your time. We're going to get back to that. Okay, number two. Okay, discern, know the Lord's will. Right? You see that there? Right? Keep going on. Keep going on. But, be filled with the Spirit. Yeah, I believe this flows naturally from the text. Right? Carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of your time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish to understand what the will of the Lord is. So understand the will of the Lord. And thirdly, do not get drunk with the wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's how we walk in wisdom. Let's tease that out a little more. Number one, for to walk in wisdom, we are to make the best use of our time. We can easily gloss over that, can't we? God has given us time. God is creator of time. And it is good. As Christians, time is progressing, isn't it? It's linear, right? There is an appointed end. Time in history is going somewhere to God's appointed end and consummation. What Ephesians, the book of Ephesians is pointing to, Christ's return, where he will reconcile all things to himself under his headship. That's where time is going. In many religions, especially the nature religions of the time that Paul's writing, time was considered cyclical, just round and around, like the seasons. No real meaning. No, but we know better as Christians. Time is precious. We're to make the most of it. History matters. Time matters. This isn't futile. Our lives here on earth. Every breath is a gift from God. Every minute is a gift from God. And it's going somewhere to a direction. And we know where it's going. We have the direction. We have the end. And we know the beginning from the end. Why? Because we have God's word, don't we? We're to treat time as a gift. It does matter. Right? But to make the best use of the time, there's something else we must know as well. If we make the best use of this time that God has given us, how many years he's given us, how many days he's given us, we're also to know what the Lord's will is. So how we can know, therefore, how to spend that time, right? We must know what the Lord's will is. Well, how do we know? Certainly, we want to go through God's word. We have his revealed word. But why do you hear this quote from Montgomery Boyce? As God is concerned with wisdom, which is more than the acquisition of mere facts, i.e., just knowing God's revealed will. We need to know that. He is concerned with our perception of what God is doing in history and with our wise response to it. How are we best to spend this day, this very hour, this minute? What does God want us to be doing? Yes, according to his revealed will in Scripture, 
how then are we to live, given what God has commanded of us, given who we are, given our limitations, our giftings, our faith. What is God calling us to do? That takes work, doesn't it? To discern what the Lord's will is. To live out each day purposely and intentionally. You see, when, when I read that, make the best use of your time, I can think, well, I've got to be more efficient. I've got to be busy, right? Therefore, I need some more time-saving devices, right? More technology, more systems, right? So I can be more efficient. Well, listen, you can be totally efficient doing absolutely the wrong things. Things that God has not called you to do. Oh, it's dangerous. It's insidious. You can go to bed. Maybe, maybe you don't do this. Maybe you have it in your mind. Maybe you do have it on paper, on computer. And you've done all five things in your list today. And you've checked them off. You're feeling good. But they weren't the five things that God was wanting of you. Yes, you did them in his sovereignty, therefore, as well. But I'm talking about that which God has revealed his priorities for you as a husband or as a father, as a mother, as a single, as a student, as a child. You can feel great. This sense of false atonement, you know? Yeah, I feel good about myself. I accomplish all my tasks. That wasn't what God had for you. It's what you had for yourself. Or you can go to bed. You didn't get one thing checked off. And you're feeling guilty. You know what? You didn't do the five things you wanted to do. But you made it on the one thing God did want you to do that day. Make the best use for time. How? Knowing the Lord's will. That takes time, doesn't it? To establish what are the right priorities. It takes time to think, doesn't it? It takes time to pray. To get into his word. And to work out his word into our life. It's called wisdom. To know how we should live. We can be busy. Oh, very busy. But not be making the best use of our time. If we're to walk as wise, we must make the best use of our time, the gift God has given us. We must work to discern the Lord's will. Where is the Lord at work in my life? What has he asked me to do? How has he asked me to respond? Staying in communion with God. Yes. It's right priorities. It's thinking. It's praying. It's reflecting. You see, there's just enough time to do all that God has asked of you. That's what I love when I read the Gospels. Christ literally had the world on his, soul, on his shoulders. And Christ never seemed rushed, did he? <laughs> never did. There were masses wanting his attention. And he felt quite comfortable to leave them all to go pray or to go to the next town. Oh, there's more to be healed. More conversions, so to speak. But he knew when to move on. He only did that which the Father was doing. And he knew what the Father was doing. And he lived the Father's will. May that be us. May we live as wisely, making the best use of our time, discerning the Lord's will. And thirdly, that we may be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not just knowing God's will, right? We must be empowered to do it as well, okay? To carry it out. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that leads to question number eight. How is the command be filled with the Holy Spirit? Verse 15. A wise use of time. Let's start there, and then we'll hit the second part of the question. What do you think? How is being filled with the Holy Spirit a wise use of time? Certainly, I think the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And I think being filled with the Holy Spirit is to be controlled and empowered and led by the Holy Spirit as well. He's leading us to do the things that exalt Christ and please 
the Father, right? So when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we are doing God's priorities. <laughs> we're on His agenda, right? That's how I see it fitting together at least. But let's talk about that a little more. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? There's a lot of teaching out there of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But I want us to look at Ephesians 5. God think some of the answers are right here in the text itself. In fact, it's fascinating that this phrase, be filled with the Holy Spirit, is preceded and juxtaposed with what precedes it. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Explain that to me. Why did Paul juxtapose those two? I think in that we can come to a better understanding of what Paul is talking about when he says be filled with the Holy Spirit. How might they be alike? Being drunk, be filled with the Holy Spirit, how might they be different? How might they be alike? Okay, a boldness. So maybe a little more unhindered when you're drunk, you're saying, in that sense? Okay. Could be, certainly, yeah. It's a controlling element, isn't there? Alcohol influences, has an influence over you, right? You could say a controlling influence, right? The drunkard associated with the fool in Proverbs, yes. Certainly, yeah, we can turn to alcohol as a way to cope, certainly. Definitely. I think what, what I see here in this text is that when someone's deeply inebriated, they think, they even walk, and they talk differently, right? When Christians are filled with the Spirit, Everyone should know it, because they too should think, walk, and talk differently, all right, in contrast to the previous verses that we've talked about. I think what we see is being filled, it's that back to the, the idea of control, right? Being filled seems to be, suggest here that to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be under control of the Holy Spirit. He's leading our thought life. Our thoughts are taken up by Christ, and the Holy Spirit bears witness too. When we're being filled, we're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I think uh, an interesting quote here I read may help us a little bit here from Martin Lloyd-Jones here. Let me just read it to you as he's commenting on this verse here. He says, Wine, alcohol, pharmacologically speaking, is not a stimulant. It is a depressant. Take any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol and you will find always it is classified among the depressants. It is not a stimulant. Going on. What the Holy Spirit does, however, is the exact opposite. If it were possible to put the Holy Spirit into a textbook of pharmacology, I would put him under the stimulants. For that is where he belongs. He really does stimulate. He stimulates our every faculty, the mind and the intellect, the hearts and the will. Consider now how Paul paints the contrast. The results of drunkenness, he writes, is debauchery. People who are drunk give way to wild, dissolute, and uncontrolled actions. They behave like animals, indeed worse than animals. The results of being filled with the Spirit are totally different. If excessive alcohol dehumanizes, turning a human being into a beast, the fullness of the Spirit makes us more human, for He makes us more like Christ. So we see the similarities, influence, and control, but we also see the contrast, don't we? Being filled to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, right? As opposed to losing control. Okay? That's good. Yes, it is. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's an imperative here. It's in the present tense imperative. So it's continual. It's continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right. David. Gotcha. So contact with the pagan rituals was included alcohol. 
supposed to be filled with the Spirit, which includes songs, hymns, spiritual songs. Let's talk about that a little more, too, but the results of being filled. I think we can get a little more closer to it, understanding of what he means there as you look at what follows in the verses ahead. In fact, there's five participles that follow the imperative to be filled. These you could say would be the results of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's that they're describing what this looks like in the believer. What does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, I don't think we're left wondering here. We're given five participles and phrases here. Did you find those? What's the first one? Okay, dressing. That word could be also translated speaking to one another. Curious, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Okay, we're going to unpack that a little later, okay? What's the second one? Singing, and we'll, we'll combine them. Singing, and the third one, making melody, right? To the Lord with your heart. What's next? Giving thanks. Fascinating. And then lastly, submitting to one another. You want to know what being filled with the Holy Spirit looks like? Here you go, right here. What does that mean, though? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs. Does that mean we just sing to one another? <laughs> you know, go around singing, serenading one another? What's well, that? It's speaking, speaking songs. Interesting. If that thing includes more than just singing, okay? It certainly can't include that. But what are you doing when you're singing songs or hymns to one another? Or you're speaking them to one another? What are you doing? Encouraging, edifying, reminding each other of the truths of the gospel and who God is. We do all those things, right? When we're singing or when we're counseling. In one sense, he seems to be describing fellowship, isn't he? There's a one another component here, okay? In this first participle, addressing one another, reminding one another, speaking truth, the gospel to one another whether it be through song or verbal speech. I think in one sense, we're seeing this idea of fellowship as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. How about the next one, though? Singing and making melody. To whom? To the Lord, with your heart. What does it sound like? Worship. Right. Worship is part of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. We worship. So we fellowship, you could say, and we worship as well. How about giving thanks? Isn't that fascinating? Giving thanks is a mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I thought I was speaking in tongues, Corey. That's the mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Could be, but we have, I think in Pentecostal circles, what, what happens is we're, we're looking for that experience. You know, if I speak in tongues, then I really know I'm filled. Well, did you have a thankful heart? What's your heart like? Is it filled with thanksgiving and praise? Lots of sure what it now right there. God's at work in your heart. Maybe filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? And lastly, submitting to one another. Fascinating. What's he talking about? Well, we need to read the following verses, don't we? Verses 22 and following in Ephesians 5. He's going to different sets of relationships that revolve submitting to an authority. He's going to tease that out for us. And this, too, is a mark a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So we engage in fellowship and worship. Our hearts are filled with thanksgiving for who God is and what He has done. And we willingly submit to one another, particularly those that are in authority over us. Fascinating. 
Those are the results of being filled with the Spirit. Well, question 10, with that in mind, how are the commands given to the wives and husbands connected to the imperative to be filled with the Holy Spirit? In verse 18. Because we often teach Ephesians 5.22, but we start there, don't we? I haven't heard too many sermons or teachings on marriage to actually back it up. But there's a context to this. Okay? Mark the Holy, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the way we use our time. Live not as wa- unwise, but as wise. How? Being filled with the Holy Spirit. In part, that is submitting to one another. And then he marshals the example of the marital relationship. So there's a connection between being filled with the Holy Spirit and marriage. Do you see it? But we often lose the context, don't we, in our teaching. So talk to me about it. What is it how to, connect those two for me. How are the commands given to wives and husbands connected to the imperative, be filled with the Holy Spirit? Certainly, right? That would be, that would be definitely exhibit A of I think what he's talking about of being submitting right to one another, right? But I think here's the point I want to draw out here. To fulfill the very commands given to wives and to husbands, we must be spirit-filled. We can't do it without. These are impossible commands to fulfill as a husband and wife. When you're married, you know what I'm talking about. We need the filling of the Holy Spirit to do the very things which He asks of us. So when He speaks of marriage, He's speaking of two spirit-filled Christians. Otherwise, this ain't going to work. It ain't going to happen. There's no way. This is for the spirit-filled. That's for Christians. We have the admonition of the Scripture, do not be unequally yoked, right? 2 Corinthians 6.14. But even if we didn't have that verse, listen, don't be unequally yoked, because if one person isn't spirit-filled for the Spirit, he's not going to fulfill his obligation or her obligation in marriage. There's no way. You must be a believer, and you fill the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean we're filled every moment. But apart from the filling of the Holy Spirit, we cannot adequately fulfill what God has asked, His very design for marriage. Do you catch that? I think that's often the piece we don't bring into our teaching enough, probably, on this topic of marriage. And we must. We must. And of course, we'll hit other relationships as we look at Ephesians 6 coming up next month. Well, speaking of marriage, in our last set of questions here, how was marriage part and parcel of God's overarching salvation historical purpose? The big phrase, isn't it? As seen in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. That's what I'm referring to. Let's, let's look at Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. This is our theme verse. This is my theme verse for Ephesians. This is God's will, what he's accomplishing. He's making known to us the mystery of his will according to this purpose which he set forth in Christ. So here's God's, the Father's purpose in Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. To unite, or that word means to sum up all things in Christ under his headship. With that in mind, that's what God is doing in the world. It's His grand plan for Christ. It's His cosmic purpose. 
How does marriage fit into God's plan here? Do you see the connection? Okay, the one flesh? Yes. It's a picture, yes, of the union of Christ and his church, is it not? Marriage is exhibit. Just the church is an exhibit of Jew and Gentile together under Christ's headship, right? United in Christ's headship. So is marriage a picture, an exhibit of what God is doing in the world. Uniting two people, right, in marriage. Representing the union of Christ with the church. So all of a sudden our marriages have become much more than just about ourselves, right? Much more than just about our personal happiness. Our marriages are a witness to the world of what God is doing in Christ. He's uniting us, his bride, his church, with him, the exalted Christ. And to the exhibit to the world. You catch that? This is heady stuff. Late at night. This is rough. I know. I know, Tim. I see your head spinning there. Okay, buddy? I'm with you. Just want to posit that thought. You can tease it out later. I think Paul is very purposeful here in what he's writing. He said the theme of Ephesians now, we're seeing it in human relationships. We're seeing it in the church. God is uniting all things under his headship. It says the wife underneath the husband's headship. So Christ uniting all things. His church, his bride, under his headship. And so marriage has been given to us to be a picture of what God is doing in this world. And that's why God hates divorce. It slanders his work and what he is doing in Christ. So in conclusion, Ephesians 5, we are called to walk in love, not a perverted love, which is lust. We're to walk as light, exposing darkness. And we're to walk in what? In wisdom. Making the best use of time, right? Discerning the Lord's will. And thirdly, Being filled with the Holy Spirit in our relationships. By the way, being filled with the Holy Spirit, that's corporate, second person, plural. It's you all being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. This isn't just an individual thing. I'm getting off of God and being filled. Okay? This is something that God does together. Okay? Not that he can't do it in a part, but there's a corporate dimension here. We're filled in relationship to one another as we experience fellowship, as we worship together. There's something special that takes place. There's a filling. Okay? as we come together as the church to be the church. And God fills us in the church, in our marriages, in our relationships. May it be. Amen. It's 9 o'clock. All right, guys. <laughs> well, thank you for your attention. I'm going to cut it off there because it is 9. I want to keep faithful to the time. It's a lot of stuff. We have one more chapter to go. Chapter 6, Ephesians. We've been talking about walk, walk, walk. Next month, we're going to hear, stand, stand. Who do we stand against? Read on, chapter 6. It'll be a great discussion, all right? (laughs) That's it.